Welcome to the Ethics and Compliance Library, where each episode we will take a deep dive into an ethics and compliance book, giving you the inside scoop through interviews with authors and industry leaders. I'm your host, Lauren Siegel. Today's episode will feature The Smartest Guys in the Room by Peter Elkind and Bethany McLean. Before we speak with Peter and the woman known as the Enron whistleblower, Sharon Watkins, let's get a lay of the land. Whether you read the book, watched the documentary, or learned about Enron in a business course in college, I have yet to come across anyone in the business world or not who has not heard of this famous scandal. Over less than 12 months, this multi-billion dollar empire with a massive stock price associated with it sunk into bankruptcy and multiple convictions. Their infectious leadership, competitive and fun culture, and stronghold on the market made it a desirable place to work, but ultimately contributed to its downfall. What struck me the most as I learned more about the Enron scandal through my research for this episode was just how many times something illegal occurred. Not just towing the line of ethicality, but jumping off the deep end. And no one ever questioned it. The assumption was made time and time again that someone knew about it and was doing something about it. That it must not be what it looks like or, well, frankly, that the money was so great, it was okay. The story is captivating. As Peter puts it, it was a drama and that's what made it such a great story to tell and film to make. One might question if they had the right policies and code of conduct in place, citing that as the reason for corruption. But in fact, they had those things. Well, it was just one or two or a handful of bad apples, right? No. That's just it. Many people might have questioned their behavior at one point or another, but continued forward with their unethical behavior because it was the Enron way. They were making money. They stopped asking the questions that desperately needed to be asked. The auditors didn't, the lawyers didn't, the traders didn't, and leadership touted extreme growth and opportunity. Bethany McLean came in and wrote the first critical article about Enron. She asked questions that no one could answer. Now, if leadership can't answer the simple question of how do you make money? Employees, shareholders, auditors, lawyers, you should begin to dig deeper. But it wasn't Bethany's article that brought down Enron. It was their fraudulent accounting practices, amongst other things. Those practices were uncovered by Sharon Watkins. And this is where I started to go deep into my research. I spent all day talking to organizations about whistleblower solutions and their speak up programs. We put mechanisms in place to allow things to come up internally before they end up on the news and bringing down an organization. We hope we can prevent from becoming the next Enron. Yet 20 years ago, that speak up program failed. Sharon's experience, unfortunately, is not unique. Many try to speak up internally and are met with challenges. They are told to bring things forward and then nothing is done. 
Many are met with retaliation. Sharon found out later there was even a, an attempt to fire her before they realized that would actually do more damage. A lot has changed since Sharon came forward as the whistleblower. There are stronger solutions in place for speaking up. There are more regulations to protect whistleblowers and even incentivize them to speak up. With systematic changes like Dodd-Frank's and the EU whistleblowing directive, the hope is that more people will speak up and feel safe doing so. But there is more to be done, a lot more. Sharon speaks about this in her interview. And while we use Enron as the North Star for what not to do, the case study for ENC, there are so many moments along that storyline that happen every day in organizations. We have to ask questions. We have to encourage and protect speak up culture. Becoming the next Enron will start with leadership. It won't start with fraudulent accounting practices. Avoiding the next Enron will also start with leadership, creating trust. To explore this story further, we will now talk to Peter Elkine, one of the authors of The Smartest Guys in the Room. Following that, we will speak with Sharon Watkins about building trust internally and what her experience was like as the whistleblower of Enron. Peter Alkind is an award-winning investigative reporter at ProPublica, where he has worked for the past four years. He previously chronicled investigative sagas for 20 years at Fortune Magazine, where he co-authored The Smartest Guys in the Room with Bethany McLean. His published stories include an investigation of FBI Director James Comey's mishandling of the Hillary Clinton email case, the trouble with Steve Jobs, about how the CEO of Apple concealed his bout with pancreatic cancer, hack of the century about how a cyber invasion brought Sony Pictures to its knees and terrified corporate America, inside Elon Musk's 1.4 billion score about how the Tesla CEO dazzled his way to epic state incentives for a giant battery plant in the Nevada desert, and inside Pfizer's palace co-authored with Jennifer Rheingold, which won the 2012 Gerald Liab Award for Magazine Writing. His work has also appeared in the New York Times Magazine and the New Yorker. In addition to The Smartest Guys in the Room, a national bestseller, Peter has written two other books, Client Nine, about the rise and fall of the New York governor, Elliot Spitzer, and The Death Shift, a true crime saga about the Texas pediatric nurse uh, Janine Jones, suspected of killing more than a dozen children under her care. Peter recently returned to that story more than 30 years later to cover new developments in the case, which will be included in an updated new paperback edition of The Death Shift to be published this November. He currently lives in Fort Worth, Texas, nearby my home of Dallas, Texas, and is here today to talk to us about his experience in writing The Smartest Guys in the Room. Peter, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the Ethics and Compliance Library podcast today. Listeners are really excited to dive into the smartest guys in the room with you. Uh, someone so close to the book, so close to the story. 
it'll be really great to, to hear your perspective. So I, I want to start with a very basic question. Why did you write the book? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me, Lauren. Um, it, it, was a, it was a story that was begging to be told. Um, you know, our vantage point was I was at Fortune Magazine. My colleague and co-author Bethany McLean was at Fortune Magazine. Um, we had been in the midst of uh, Enron being heralded as one of the great companies in America, uh, incredibly uh, brilliant uh, with you know, incandescent leadership. And uh, a company that was extremely successful, or at least it appeared so, uh, making a ton of money. The stock had soared at one point as high as $70 a share. And uh, you know, its leaders were on the covers of magazines, including our magazine. And, you know, in the span of a year, basically, it all came apart. And it was incredibly fast and incredibly dramatic fall. And uh, in December 2001, when Enron declared bankruptcy, uh, I mean, it was a shock, uh, an enormous shock. And um, both because of the business failure, it where something that seemed to be so great was revealed as being exactly the opposite, um, but also a, a company that seemed to have all the right virtues, leadership, and political connections uh, as well. And suddenly it had all collapsed and a lot of people were suffering as a result. So it was an incredibly big story. And you know, the mystery was to explain it. The goal was to explain it. What, what the hell happened here? Um, so it was a natural project for a book. And when you think about what did happen, you mentioned that really wonderful leadership that was touted everywhere. You mentioned the, the cultural piece and how loyal employees were. When you think back to, to what really brought it all down, what was the most surprising thing to you as you were doing the interviews and, and writing this book that really did bring it all down? I mean, I think the single thing that ultimately resulted in Enron's collapse and this disaster was, was arrogance, um, you know, enormous hubris. Um, but that played out in, in an assortment of ways where this company um, was able to engage in all kinds of financial manipulations that made it seem so much more prosperous and profitable than it was. It was, it was all a fraud. And, uh, you know, there were some solid parts of Enron, but an awful lot of it was, uh, was a manipulation. And uh, it was a manipulation that existed despite, you know, a sort of highly pedigreed board that looked great on the surface. Uh, presumably was overseeing it despite uh, risk mechanisms that seemed, you know, sort of state of the art, um, despite expensive lawyers and accountants who were supposed to be overseeing all of this and keeping terrible things from happening. Uh, you know, part of the story is that there were all sorts of enablers that, that led Enron to take place, but at the heart of it is, is the leadership of the company itself, um, which was determined to keep the stock price up, um, uh, please Wall Street, um, you know, preserve its uh, image of, of every business being successful, when in truth, it really wasn't. Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting things to me and really stuck with me as I was reading and as I also watched the, the documentary is how many things had gone wrong time after time that were ignored by so many people or overlooked and said, well, they must know, and there must be something that's, that's behind the scenes that we don't realize. And that's a really scary thing. And something that 
I think companies are thinking a lot about now is this happened almost 20 years ago, right? And we're looking at, at this massive ethics and compliance failure and saying, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? Now, the book talks a lot about how those things went down. And you can then take that and say, these are things we can do differently and, and change. What's happened since the book was written 18 years ago? How do you hope people are reading it now and taking from it? Well, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I really think Enron is a kind of defining scandal of the 21st century. And you know, it's one that resonates it's one that resonates today um, a lot. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, th there are some big messages, some big takeaways that I hope people will, um, will learn from it. Um, but, you know, certainly they haven't perfectly <laughs> uh, because corporate scandals continue to happen. Uh -huh. and, uh, you know, the, um, so uh, the business world has to do a much better job than it has in policing itself. Um, and not just doing what is okay by the rules, but what is right morally, uh, what makes sense. I mean, one of the big problems at Enron was, you know, they thought they it was okay to do whatever they could get away with in terms of following the literal definition of the rules. And, and, and so they engaged an enormous amount of game playing um, in addition to stuff that was flat out illegal. Um, and so they created structures and financial arrangements that, you know, plainly were phony, uh, but technically follow the rules. And so it's, it's a matter of not just of, you know, sort of checking the boxes of compliance, but doing the right thing. And that, that needed to be front and center, and it still needs to be front and center much more than it is in business. And when you think about those lessons and the companies that exist today, one, do you think there are still Enrons today, companies that are doing things like Enron was doing? And, and then secondarily, do you think that companies have operationalized the lessons that that came from Enron and are they is that helping to avoid quote Enron's existing today well you know this is a pretty hard one to duplicate <laughs> um i mean this is a company that had uh you know was worth um you know a massive amount of money it was one of the biggest companies in america had you know more than 20,000 employees um, enormous stock value and you know it all melted away really in the span of a year and the, the degree of illusion is pretty hard to pull off uh, I mean it's really quite an amazing feat that they accomplished and that's what made it such an extraordinary story is explaining how it could be so I don't know that there are you know there are many Enrons certainly not of that scale or any Enrons going on today um, but certainly there's there's um, you know, there's corporate fraud and there's, there's arrogance and there's cutting corners and there's doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we certainly do see that on a pretty regular basis in the business world and in Wall Street. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the, the prosecution of leaders of Enron, including Jeff Skilling, including Ken Lay, including Andy Fassel, the top people, um, I think, you know, gives pause. <laughs> to people who are at high levels trying to do bad things yeah. should they be inclined to do that. Um, I mean, delivered a message and, and uh, you know, having a company not just pay a fine, but having its, its top executives prosecuted is a lesson that, you know, that's sort of a cautionary warning to anybody contemplating bad stuff today. Um, 
it's it, you know it certainly hasn't brought wrongdoing to a halt, but it's uh, <laughs> I think it's had a, a significant impact in 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 curbing it. Yeah, I think the the changes that have come from regulations in the last twenty years have definitely made it harder for some of those things to occur and definitely made it more possible for people to speak up. Um, Sharon Watkins, who will be interviewed a little bit later in the podcast, is known as the whistleblower of Enron, right? And you think about all of the changes that have come to whistleblowing regulations and how people are protected when they speak up. And a lot has changed, but there is so much still that needs to be done. And I, I really look at what you do and you're, you're more or less a whistleblower of sorts. You're an activist writer. A lot of your writing is very focused on uh, change and what's going on in the world. How does, how does that translate into the, the story that you wrote about Enron, the work that you're doing today and moving forward, and the way that you think about how people should read this book? Interesting question. So I don't think of myself as a whistleblower. Um, I, I mean, I think the um, an investigative journalist uh, uh, is ideally exposing th wrongdoing, bringing uh, shedding light on problems that result in um, change, accountability. Um, and that's, you know, that's the goal of, uh, I think, of investigative journalism. And, um, you know, it's certainly the case during my time at Fortune magazine, where I was for 20 years and when I wrote this book. And it's very much the mission of ProPublica, which is where I am now, accountability. Um, trying to shed light on a problem, on an issue, on a wrongdoing, and uh, seeing that, that it's addressed, corrected, that wrongs are ideally, um, you know, addressed in some form. Um, I think that's a, that's a, you know, uh, a noble thing to be doing. Yeah. Um, it's something I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be at ProPublica, which has, you know, done that, done a lot of terrific work on the, along those lines. That's awesome. I, and one, one more or second to last question for you is when, when you think about the, the way that the world has changed. You think about the message and how it's evolved over the last 20 years. One of the things that really resonates with me is, is the, really the impact it had on everyone around the company too. Not just the individuals involved, but their families and uh, those that had, were at companies that had been purchased by Enron in their 401ks and right, there's so many people involved in what went down. When you think about the interviews that you had done, the, the, the work that you had done for this book, what stands out to you the most as, as the real impact? What happened that was more than just the business implication? Where did your, your head go when you were reading through, when you were writing through everything? That's, that's really interesting point. I mean, I think one of the most startling things to us from beginning to end was, you know, how could so how could how could something like this happen at such a large company with so many smart people around? And um, the sort of short takeaway from that is that this was a real illustration of how leadership matters in a good way and a bad way. The people that went to work at Enron, you know, were not 
didn't come in as evil people intending to, you know, defraud, um, defraud investors. Uh, you know, they invariably lost a whole lot of money themselves uh, as their money was in the, you know, the company's stock in huge, huge percentages. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, a lesson of all this is, is just how, um, you know, how leadership um, can shape behavior in a, on a massive scale. And that's what happened at Enron. Uh, from the top down, uh, this was a scandal that was built absolutely from the top down. And, um, and, and I think uh, it also is a, is a scandal that took place where you know, everything looked good from the outside, all the appearances were great, um, and yet horrible things were going on. And so I, I think it, it, it's a lesson um, also to, you know, that you, you can't assume that just because the appearance of uh, compliance is in place and ethics is in place, that it is in place. It's clear all over Britain that, that you listen to people who are raising questions about it, um, that it not be, uh, I mean, one problem at Enron was that nobody on Wall Street who was recommending the stock in 2001 and um, was really asking serious questions about it. Yeah. They just thought the management was so incandescently brilliant um, that, oh, you know, it's a black box. We don't know how Enron's making its money, but we think they've got it figured out and, and you know, we're giving, keep buy ratings on this stock. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a basically a bottom line that says you, you got to ask questions, critical questions, and if the company won't answer them, you should run the other way. Questioning things becomes more and more important as, as things become less and less clear, for sure. Uh, and I lied, I do have one more question before my last <laughs> question, which is, as, as you think about the people who are listening to this podcast, some of whom have read the book, some of whom have the book sitting on their shelf and have not read it, others have, have maybe watched the documentary. How, how do you feel, and I know you were involved in uh, in the making and interviewing of the documentary, how do you feel the documentary actually represents what you wrote in the book? Is it one-to-one? -one? Do you feel like there are things that are missing or were, were made a little bit more extreme? I think the documentary is terrific. I think it's great. Um, we worked very closely with Alex Gibney, who's the filmmaker. Um, you know, it's extraordinary that you can take a financial scandal, which on the surface seemed to be about accounting and off-balance sheet entities and legal procedures and, um, you know, sort of arcane structures with funny names like Jedi <laughs> and, and turn it into a really gripping, captivating film. And, you know, I think that very perfect, that really perfectly reflects that it's a human story. It was a real drama. And, um, and, and it made a great film because it was, it, it was an extraordinary story in that respect. And it was told by a, by a terrific documentary filmmaker. Yeah, I, I was captivated by it. I was captivated by the book and uh, I, I was really impressed by the way the two come together. You often hear people say, oh yeah, read the book. The movie wasn't as good, right? But I, I felt like they really complimented each other and, and helped me to get a better understanding of some of the things that I had read as well. Now, my last question for you and for real, the last question. Sure. Is there anything else that you want to tell us as you think about your, your experience in investigative journalism or in your experience working on this book or learning more about Enron or thinking back on it over the last 20 years? What else do you want to tell us today? It's a little bit of what, what I discussed before, but I think, um, you know, if I, if I circle back to how we got onto the story in the first place, it really was my co-author, Bethany, um, 
who wrote the first story, first critical story that anyone really wrote about Enron in February mm -hmm. of 2001. And um, as I recall, it had the headline, is Enron overpriced? Yeah. And it was a four page article in Fortune magazine. Um, she was a young journalist who had um, not written any long pieces or books. Uh, she had come from Goldman Sachs. She's super smart. And she was asking the natural question of how does Enron make its money? And she would call up Wall Street analysts and you know, ask them, because it wasn't clear from their financial statements or any of their public discussions of the business. And they, they literally couldn't answer the question. One of them said, you know, if you figure it out, let me know. And these are people that were, were telling investors, average folks, to put their money in this stock, to bet on this company, and they couldn't explain how it works. And when Bethany tried to then get answers from Jeff Skilling and Andy Fastow and Ken Lay, uh, they sort of freaked out. At one point, they, they flew on the company jet to New York to meet with her and confront her and fortune editors and, um, you know, sort of lied about the situation, the, lied about the, the finances of the company. Uh, it, it, at one point, Andy Fasto said, you know, I don't care what you say, but Enron just don't make me look bad. Now, if that's not a red flag, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it, it, the lesson there in all of that is, uh, you know, you, you can't just take something at face value. You've got to be, um, you know, it, it, again, if a business can't explain how it works, even if it's a CEO who uh, graduated from Harvard's business school and went to McKinsey and was on the cover of Business Week a month earlier, um, it's a real problem and you should be very skeptical. I could not agree more. And I think as we, as we head into this next interview with Sharon Watkins, it, it's going to be really interesting to hear how what she saw and took at face value turned into asking questions and ultimately the downfall of, of Enron and ultimately what it looks like for whistleblowers today. So uh, Peter, the, the work that you did on this book was phenomenal and the work that you continue to do is beyond impactful. So thank you personally uh, from me and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us all today. I know listeners are really excited to, to get to hear from you. So uh, we appreciate your time and look forward to reading whatever else you have in store for us. Thanks very much, Lauren. Great to be with you. Better known as the Enron whistleblower, Miss Sharon Watkins is the former vice president of Enron Corporation who alerted the then CEO, Ken Lay, in August 2001 to accounting irregularities within the company, warning him that Enron might implode in a wave of accounting scandals. She has testified before congressional committees from the House and Senate investigating Enron's demise. Time Magazine named Sharon, along with two others, Colleen Rowley of the FBI and Cynthia Cooper of WorldCom, as their 2002 Persons of the Year for being, quote, people who did right just by doing their jobs rightly. She speaks around the globe to a broad range of audiences about ethics, flawed leadership, and the toxic label of whistleblower. Sharon was employed for over two decades as an executive for three large global companies. All were multi-billion dollar multinational companies brought down by scandal. Sharon has seen firsthand the cost of an erosion in values. Her journey through the Enron crisis has inspired many and has crystallized her focus to improve the lot of whistleblowers and would-be whistleblowers. 
now an independent speaker and consultant. She's the co-author of Power Failure, the Inside Story of the Collapse of Enron. And today we get to hear from her about her journey as the Enron whistleblower. Hello, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Ethics and Compliance Library. We're very excited to have you here and talk a little bit about your experience as the Enron whistleblower. Talk a little bit about this case study further and explore the world of whistleblowing. So we'll go ahead and get started. My first question is, is something that you've explored in a lot of the articles that you've written, a lot of conversations that you've had with others, but what was it like bringing this forward? How, how did it change when everything started coming out and your name was associated with Enron? Well, certainly it's been very life-changing for me. And, um, you know, I can't believe we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of Enron's demise and Enron's bankruptcy. Um, you know, so 20 years ago, wow, you know, I am 61, about to be 62. That's just so close to like Medicare. I can't believe it. Um, but you know, at the time I was 41, my daughter was two, I was almost 42. And I literally changed positions within Enron and stumbled across horrible accounting fraud. And you know, my first reaction was really, I've got to get out of here. You know, I've got to dust off my resume and, and get out of here. Um, and as I'm getting my head wrapped around that, Jeff Skilling, who was our CEO, he'd been at the company for 10 years, striving to be the top person. He had made chief operating officer in early 97 and then chief executive officer early 2001. So mid-August, he up and quits. And it was a shock. I mean, a real shock. We, we had heard rumors that day that somebody's quitting, somebody's quitting. And, and we all thought, oh, it's Ken Lay. You know, he's going to go be in President Bush's cabinet, you know, or be an ambassador somewhere. You know, after the markets closed, they announced it's Jeff Skilling. And I have to say that that cemented for me that what I'd stumbled across really was fraud. You know, and he's just getting out while the getting is good. So he can say, hey, when I left in the summer of 2001, the company was looking great. Because these Raptor structures that I stumbled across were, had an expiry date of like two years later. And so literally, my reaction was very knee-jerk. You know, a one-page anonymous letter um, in anticipation of an all-employee meeting. And then, you know, I ended up identifying myself, getting on Kinley's calendar, and people say, oh, how did you have the courage and all that kind of stuff? Well, really, I thought I was presenting evidence, you know, and, and facts. And it wasn't, you know, I, I really failed to grasp the shoot the messenger phenomena or discredit, you know, the messenger. Um, I really felt kind of like a crew member on the Titanic. I'm letting the captain know we've had an iceberg and water's pouring in. Um, the, what's really the focus should be the water pouring in and the ship, not the crew person that says, hey, here's what's happening. Um, so it was really very disheartening to see no action, you know, or to see what did take place in the fall of 2001. One of the things that I hear so often when talking to leaders about whistleblowing and whistleblowers and the way that it's handled internally is 
what those mechanisms look like, maybe what was there when initial reports came up, why they're looking to build a program today. Why, why was that letter the way that you decided to, to bring this forward? What was in place? I know there was a code of conduct. What, what was there for you to submit reports? Well, so Enron had um, anonymous employee reporting mechanisms, you know, voicemail or email systems. But I had already heard through the grapevine, through, you know, a, a peer of mine, um, that those really weren't very anonymous. You know, that, that you know, be careful what you turn in. You Tends know, to be that way. <laughs> yeah, via those, those systems. And so my first reaction, you know, it's Tuesday at 3.30 in the afternoon. We hear Skilling's leaving. So literally, you know, the next day I'm just typing up, you know, a pretty inflammatory one pager. You know, I think I said something like, for those of us who didn't get rich over the last couple of years, can we afford to stay? Is Enron a risky place to work? You know, I'm incredibly nervous. We will implode in a wave of accounting scandals. You know, some pretty inflammatory words. Um, printed it out, no name, no anything, kind of, kind of wiped it <laughs> clean of fingerprints, put it in an envelope. I asked my assistant to go put it in a Dropbox and told her to be somewhat cautious, like don't stop and visit with other people you know, just kind of cruise by, drop it in and keep going. And all this is because Ken Lay said, wow, I know Jeff Skilling's departure is quite shocking. We're gonna have this all employee meeting in the ballroom of a nearby hotel on Thursday. And so I really wasn't anticipating that he was going to address my concerns because they were too inflammatory for an all employee meeting, you know, accounting fraud, hiding debt, you know, masking losses, that kind of thing. But I did go there early. I sat pretty close up. You know, I wanted to really get a good feel for what messaging he was putting out there. And he, you know, he got a standing ovation. Everyone was so happy. He was stepping back in as CEO. He talked about, you know, if anyone was truly troubled out there um, to come forward, you know, he reemphasized our values, respect, integrity, communication, excellence. And, you know, he said enough between the lines that I thought, well, I should at least identify myself, not necessarily to him right away, but I did go meet with Cindy Olson, the head of our HR department, mm -hmm. and I knew her for some, from prior projects, and we'd worked together on a few things. And her response was interesting because she said, you know, Kinley gravitates towards good news. You know, he doesn't really like to hear bad news. This was anonymous, one page. I bet he checked with the chief accounting officer or the chief financial officer, and they said, nah, nah, there's nothing to worry about but I know he would do better face-to-face. -face. You know, would you be willing to speak with him? You know, be, you know, face-to-face -face with him? And I said, yes, yes, I would. Um, but she was not able to get me on his calendar till the following week on Wednesday. But that ended up being, um, you know, a, a fortuitous event because in that period of time, I, I got more information from other people. Yeah. So I really went in armed with, with a lot of evidence. And when you think back to that, there, there are so many articles that I've read about how whistleblowers came forward, spoke about what was going on, that nothing was done internally, and that's when they, they went and did something more about it. And it sounds like that was a lot of your experience, but in, in coming forward and, and having your name out there, 
it did change your career and it it put your name with an association that maybe you didn't want or didn't expect to happen so when you think about how the world has changed since you spoke up the regulations the directives the eu directive attempting to do more right what else do we need to do to protect people like you so that it doesn't hurt their career yes well and and I do get a lot of criticism that I should have gone to the press or gone to the SEC. And, um, you know, I kind of say, yeah, that, that's possible, but I also might not have been listened to, you know, and, and that's sort of a, a dangerous step, at least it was back then. Because when you go outside the company, you're violating the confidentiality agreements that you have signed. You can be sued and sought you know, sought after by this big, powerful organization. It, it's a nerve wracking thing, you know, to do that. And there's um, a sense of loyalty as well, especially at a company like Enron that had built this culture, right? If you believe in the culture, the sense of loyalty of, of bringing it up internally versus taking it elsewhere. Well, and, and my goal was that Enron would be alive. And the thing about cooking your books, it's better if you, discover it and fess up than be discovered from the outside. Yeah. You know, and it, but it's still, my warnings were really too, too little too late because, you know, the damage had really been done by even more fraud than, than I had stumbled across. Yep. But, um, you know, Enron was investigating and looking to see, you know, what to do next when, um, you know, when I was giving, they were investigating, 9-11 happened, you know, there was a lot of distractions in the fall of 2001. But in mid-October, the company announced that they were writing off those Raptor structures, but they, they did it in a way that wasn't quite legitimate, you know, calling it a current period, non-recurring, non-cash write-off. And what's interesting is that the Wall Street Journal then hit Enron with three front page expose articles, mm -hmm. really revealing they have an inside whistleblower. I don't know who it is. We might find out this year. They're doing their own podcast on Enron. And um, they might, I, if the whistleblower lets them, they're going to identify who it was that was feeding them information. You know, I wish they would have outed it sooner. But the point is, is that by that Friday, the SEC was investigating. And I really didn't feel like there was more to do. Like, okay, they've written off these structures. The bad news is out there. I still kept trying to find another job, knowing Enron did not have, you know, a good financial future looking forward. And sure enough, they declared bankruptcy six weeks later. But um, Congress found my materials that I gave to Ken Lay in a box of subpoenaed documents and ended up calling me to testify. And the shocking thing, and I will tell you, it really kind of hurt my feelings. They asked me to look at this document and it was dated August 24th, 2001. It was from Vincent and Elkins, Enron's outside law firm. And it said, per your request, here are the potential consequences to discharging employees who raise accounting concerns. And I met with Ken Lay August 22nd. You know, so his first action was not to you know, investigate the fraud I was reporting. It was to see, could he dump me on the street and avoid, you know, well, I've since learned 
The plan of attack is to fire the whistleblower and then start spreading rumors that they're a disgruntled employee or angry or they were always trouble, so you can't believe what they're going to say. So it really was to shoot the messenger and not investigate my concerns. Now, the troubling thing to me is that that little one-page memo from Vincent and Elkins says, we don't think Ms. Watkins will prevail long-term in a wrongful termination suit, but her case won't be summarily dismissed by a judge, likely not. So in a court of law, discovery will likely bring up these raptor structures, and they might not look so good in the bright hot light of, of a courtroom. So doesn't that tell you as CEO, you've got fraud on your hands? Like don't fire her because the documents that will come up in her wrongful termination suit are going to expose your wrongdoing. It blows my mind. And I've read so much about this case study, I, I, so many documents, so many films, all of that. And every single time I, I hear the continuous things happening and it just, it amazes me that it went as far as it did. It amazes me that, that you were the one that finally came forward. And there were so many moments before that, that, that things could have come forward or that someone could have done something, but the, the mechanisms were not helpful for people to come forward. And even when you did come forward, to your point, you, you almost got fired for it. And you, you could have been maybe the CEO had the company been successful, but yet your career was changed from it. And so when we think about the way that whistleblowing has changed, there is so much that's in place. Uh, before, before we started recording, you and I were talking about um, the, the Dodd-Frank Act and, and things that are put in place to help whistleblowers and encourage them to speak up. But there's still things standing in the way. There's still things that harm whistleblowers. What, what needs to be the true force that comes in? What, what changes do you see that still need to be made to protect whistleblowers from situations like what you experienced? Certainly, I think Dodd-Frank and the whistleblower protections that were written into the Dodd-Frank Act that passed in 2010 are, are really a game changer. It gives 10 to 30% of a, of a reward to whistleblowers that give tips, complaints, referrals, you know, information to the SEC that results in SEC fines. And what that has done is attracted legal talent to the cause of the whistleblower. So if you were to Google whistleblower legal help, you know, you'd come up with over a dozen firms that have lawyers dedicated to helping whistleblowers. And you can remain anonymous. I mean, it's 20 years since Enron and I have been, um, you know, underemployed. There's something about having the label whistleblower um, that is toxic and you just don't work in your chosen career. Now, I am, don't get me wrong, I am the only whistleblower with a really good story. I mean, time, person of the year, they called it the year of the whistleblower with three of us on the cover. You know, I've been able to go around the globe talking about leadership and ethics. My daughter kind of got to experience me almost like a stay-at-home mom, able to go to her plays and volunteer at her school. You know, she, she um, she got the benefit of not having a, you know, a very hard at work mom raised by a nanny, um, which, which tends to happen a lot, you know, for, for working women. Um, but 
it's it's really the thing that that I like about Dodd Frank is it's been very successful for the SEC. They have gotten so many tips and and referrals. They've stopped so much wrongdoing. It's really helping to be a great check and balance on the system. And I think they are helping to fight to make sure it stays successful, which is just, that's all you need. You kind of need, you know, lawyers that are looking out for it and you need a government regulatory body that's looking out for it. And I think we have those two. So the thing about whistleblowing or employee hotlines, um, it's really also an employee retention program because when employees can report on something, even if it's kind of just trivial and they see it corrected, it builds this sense of, wow, my voice matters, my concerns matter, management values me. And, you know, what with this pandemic, what have we been doing, you know, streaming movies, watching everything? So Moneyball, what's in Moneyball, but hey, the, the sodas aren't free, you know, and there's a complaint about it. And next thing you know, management's making sure the sodas are free in the locker room. Uh, yeah. Ted Lasso, the new Apple TV show, <laughs> you know, with, the water pressure isn't high in the shower. And you know they show these scenes of the water pressure being improved and the players go, okay, somebody listened to me. You know, yeah. so it's not just reporting accounting fraud, it ends up being a place to report the tiny things that make employees feel heard, feel valued. I mean, it pays for itself in employee retention. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's something I talk to people about all the time that, it is really hard when you are seen as a compliance function, as a cost center instead of a revenue protector. But when you can start to make that shift, you start to see that 10 people leaving your organization means you have to hire 10 new people. And the cost of talent churning is so much more than you would spend to build out a foundational system of trust. And so that, that point around employee retention really resonates with me and a, a lot of our listeners as well. Okay. So outside of the SEC, there, there are obviously a lot of other regulatory bodies. There are a lot of other um, uh, directives and changes that have happened to protect whistleblowers. And um, I think the, the biggest factor outside of regulatory changes has been societal expectations. The way that society has changed the way they view organizations, focusing their energy on working for, engaging with, and, and um, doing business with ethical companies and ethical people. So as you think about the changes that have been made, and you think about the changes that may still need to come, how are you thinking about culture playing a part in that, both societally but also internally? I think those are, those are great points. I, I, there's an author I ran across that wrote a book called The Naked Corporation, and he was predicting that with, you know, social media, the internet, you know, that if you're doing something wrong, you're going to get caught. So his tagline was, you know, if you're going to be naked, you might as well be buff. You know, be in good shape. You know, just do things the that. right way. Um, and I think that's hopefully, you know, with the correct set of checks and balances, um, companies will just start to do the right thing. Um, you know, you, you roll through a stop sign when you really don't expect for there to be an 
any traffic and you don't expect, you know, a, a police officer there to, to give you a, a traffic violation. Um, but if you, if you know there's a lot of traffic, that it's a dangerous intersection, that usually it is monitored by camera or police, you know, you're going to come to a full stop. Um, you're going to obey the laws. Mm -hmm. So I think these whistleblower protections and these things in place that, that um, incentivize people to report wrongdoing help the system be healthy. They shouldn't be, you know, tried, they shouldn't be attacked or, or um, I guess, um, diminished in any way possible because, you know, they're just, it's a new program. It's only a decade old. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the cultural piece of it, I want to double tap into for a second here that there, there's, I mean, when you, when you think about the, the reports around the culture that was created internally at Enron. There were um, really harsh performance reviews and, and massive population cuts after those, uh, those performance reviews. There was a very intense culture of outperforming the person next to you and um, maybe even the strip clubs and things like that. How, how did that culture actually feel internally versus how it was portrayed after the fact? Well, I will say that the, you know, once a company is sort of in the pile of evil empire, people kind of pile on to that yeah. pile. Uh -huh. And Enron did have some really fun things that were cool about it. Um, it was very entrepreneurial. It was easy for you to sell an idea and get a budget approved to go pursue that. That's awesome. And most of my friends that were Enron colleagues that have gone on to other large publicly traded corporations, they bemoan the fact that, um, everything just moves so slowly. So many committee meetings, so many conference room um, get-togethers, that things just move at a snail's pace. And at Enron, we were very, very fast-paced. So you were never, ever bored at Enron. It was really a lively, fun place to work. But I sometimes liken it to Formula One race car driving, which used <laughs> to be very dangerous. But now, you know, they have the crash boxes and the flameless fuel and and the uniforms that keep them from burning up. And, yeah. You know, you'll see a horrible crash and, and the driver walks away, you know, shocking. Mm -hmm. Well, so Enron was kind of fast paced like that, but we, we took away all the safeguards. You know, we didn't come in to change our tires. We took away some of the crash box because it made the car too heavy. You know, that we just, we emasculated our risk management and control departments and and paid the price for it. We just did not have the right respect for risk management and internal controls. Yeah, and so many organizations use that as the case study, the reason to build out these functions today that it was lacking at Enron and now, now we have to make sure we put it in place so we don't become Enron. But in my opinion, there are still Enrons out there. There are still companies that are are on that racetrack without any of the safeguards in place. They, um, they are looking at their code of conduct and saying this single PDF document is enough and, and, that's, and that's good. What would you say to companies that are functioning in that way today? You are wondering what that experience would be like and you're trying to, uh, to think about how you would bring an issue forward. What would you say to those people? Well, I generally always um, advise 
talking amongst your peers in a safe, trusting environment. You probably will find others that have the same concern. And if you can go together to make some sort of report, do it. But also the wonderful thing is Google whistleblower legal help and start talking to an attorney and get some real advice on what your next step should be. And the nice thing about those attorneys is they don't want to be involved in something that's not a real problem. You know, they're able to ask you the kind of questions that help you discern whether you really have stumbled across or found or need to report a, um, a violation or if it's, if it's not quite what you think it is. They can help you talk in a safe environment and usually now at no cost to you because if the case does develop, they will work on contingency from the, the reward program under Dodd-Frank. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sharon, I really appreciate your time today. I, what, what you have done in the space, the, the continued conversations that you've ignited around the world, but also um, this, this case study and helping to continue to shine light on it and, and make sure that this kind of situation doesn't have to happen again is really important. And so uh, your time here today is really valuable. And uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you've done for, uh, for whistleblowers around the world. Um, and I am really excited to have listeners follow up uh, in the Converge community, converge.conversant.com. And we will continue the conversation about whistleblowing and anti-retaliation there. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Peter Elkind and Sharon Watkins for their time and expertise presented in today's episode on Enron's downfall and the smartest guys in the room. We will continue the conversation in the Converge community, converge.conversant.com. Over the next three months, I will be reading another book for episode four. Want to vote on the next book featured? Head over to LinkedIn where I will share a poll on Monday, August 9th to determine what we will be reading next. I hope you consider reading along with me and I look forward to episode four in late October or early November, 2021. Thank you for listening and thank you for leading. Mm -hmm.